0: Imagine a, a cross between a domestic cat, a fox, and a raccoon. About the same about the same size as a domestic cat.
1: I
2: th- um, yeah, does that,
1: that sound right? I think that makes sense. Okay. I think it's as far as I've seen in pictures, it's usually like dark brown. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it have any other kind of like fur pattern or color. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: They're very furtive. They're very sneaky. So they're also like a domestic cat.
3: From Stanford University and SiriusXM, this is Stanford Legal. I'm Rich Ford.
4: And I'm Joe Bankman. And today, we're talking in front of a live audience with our colleague Debbie Sivas and Stanford Law students Sydney Frederick and Chris Mayer about what makes endangered species worth protecting. And Rich, to kick this off, let me ask you a question. Why do we care if a species becomes extinct?
3: Well. Some people would say that it's just a loss generally, something beautiful is lost from the world. Other people might also point out that when a species becomes extinct, it's telling us something about what's going on in the broader environment. The the endangered species are kind of canaries in the coal mine that might warn us of bigger environmental problems that are going to affect us all, like forest
4: fires, global warming, um, the degradation of the environment generally. One way or the other, I think most of us, if you just press a button and say extinct or not, people press the not button. But I guess the, the tough issues come when there are trade-offs. And we don't quite know if it's going to become extinct, but it's becoming endangered when it's expensive to stop extinction, and so on.
3: Right, where people may have to lose their jobs, or industries will have to change what they're doing. And those trade-offs are kind of at the center of a legal issue that we're gonna talk about with our guests today.
4: All right. Today we're gonna to talk about the possible extinction of a mammal called a, a Pacific Fisher in the Southern Sierra with our guests. And I want to start off by asking one of our guests, our longtime colleague Debbie Sevus, tell us about the big picture posed by the case we're gonna talk about today.
2: Sure. So this is a case, as you said, Joe, that uh, involves the Pacific Fisher, recently listed as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. But we as the clinic took this case mostly because it has broader ramifications for how the Forest Service is managing several forests on the southern Sierra Nevada, which those are forests that have been hammered by climate change, drought, wildfire. And so this was really a case to kind of test if we could push the Forest Service in a new direction, a more ecologically sound management direction.
3: Now, I thought the Forest Service was there to preserve the forest. So why is it that you had to sue the Forest Service? What's going on there?
2: Well, the Forest Service manages those lands for multiple use, is what the the statute says, but it has a long-time history of a lot of logging and timber coming off those forests, and still today those forests are still a source of timber sales to private companies. So there is a little bit of a bias towards timber production over other uses of the forest.
4: And what's wrong with timber production there, I mean? Nothing's
2: wrong with timber production. We all use paper and wood. But we want to do it in an ecologically sustainable way. And so that's really the dispute, is can you do it in a way that also protects species and the environment?
4: If it isn't ecologically sustainable, and I'm going to take it that in this case, the clinic made the decision it wasn't, and is using the Endangered Species Act for its own purpose and for broader purposes, Tell me what's wrong with, in the clinic's mind or in your mind, with what's happening in these forests. This is southern Sierra Nevada, so places like uh, Mount Whitney in California or around around that part of the world, Mm -hmm. what are they doing that's wrong? Well,
2: there's been a lot of timber production over the years, so there's very little kind of mature old growth forests, and that's going to Rich's point, kind of the canary in the coal mine. The Pacific Fisher uses that mature habitat. That's what it needs to survive. And so this is a a case that looks across those forests and, and tries to get the Forest Service to preserve those old growth forests. You might be able to continue to log younger forests or second growth forests, but we really have very little, about 10% of the historic old growth forests. I think our clients in the case think we need to save every bit of that that's left.
3: Other than the extinction of some of the, the species that rely on the old growth forests, what are some of the reasons that we should be especially concerned about losing those old growth forests? I mean, What are the ramifications of the path that we're currently on?
2: Yeah, so in addition to just protecting the species and the ecosystem that has evolved there, those are the forests that are most likely to protect us against future wildfire risks. And if you've lived in California for the last last. couple of years or probably anywhere in the west you know wildfires have become a a huge issue as the climate gets hotter and drier and those old growth forests are really the coolest wettest forests there are so those are the ones we really want to preserve and protect and they serve as a carbon sink as well
3: wow so you could say that this pacific fissure is an indication of problems that are leading us to have more wildfires every summer could you just walk us through a little bit of some of why we're having the increase in fires and how the, the destruction of the old growth forest leads into that, other than it being like a, you know, a, a preservation for carbon?
2: Sure. So historically, the Forest Service has um, suppressed fire on our national forest. And that made sense in the mid-20th uh, century because we wanted to preserve that timber and preserve those Environments And so if they burned up, right, you didn't have the timber. But we've now learned that suppression of, of fire is actually not the way to keep those forests healthy because they are naturally adapted to fire. So we need to actually let those fires burn. Those kind of fires, if they burn through those old growth Forest, they burn a very low level, they're kind of ground fires, and they, they clean up the vegetation, um, but they don't generally burn the big old trees, the things that are keeping the forest cool and dry. So those are um, there's a needs to be a change in, in the management there, and the Forest Service is moving towards that, but their response has been, well, we actually need to clear it all out, so we need to cut down a lot of those big trees and start over. And I, I would say the clients we represent don't think that's the way to go, and that's really the theoretical dispute.
4: What are
2: the clients we represent in this case? So we represent uh, th- three groups. One is the U- U- Unite the Parks, and uh, they are looking, th- their mission is to have a kind of continuous park from Yosemite all the, all the way down to Sequoia Kings National Canyon. In between are the forests that we're litigating over. So they're looking to protect those more like a park, less like a operating forest. And then we, um, the other groups in the case are the John Muir Project, uh, which has been working on forestry issues for a long time and the Sequoia Forest Keeper.
3: So Debbie, you mentioned, it, it sounds like there are two fire suppression theories, and the Forest Service theory is that you kind of manage it a lot with human intervention, whether it's logging and various things, you try to deprive the fires of fuel, and the idea that you and some of your clients have is a different one where it's kind of a more natural process, something that we would have seen before human intervention. Is, is, Is that about right?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's the basic dispute. And I think it extends even beyond forests uh, to other kinds of ecosystems. But that's the main disagreement. And, you know, there's science out there. People can point to science on both sides. I, I think that, I think our clients don't object to doing some of that logging around urban communities. You know, there are many communities. It's called the wildland urban interface. So communities that are built into the forests. You want to protect those from those catastrophic, catastrophic fires. But in the backcountry, where there really aren't a lot of people, other than you know maybe campers and hikers and stuff, I think our clients really think you should let those natural low-level fires burn. And that will be the way we get those for us back to ecological health.
4: How do you take clients in the clinic, uh, Debbie? Because I assume there are parties on all sides. And we decide, or you decide, which parties to take. Some of it, I think, is an opportunity for our students to learn litigation skills. but. Maybe you could uh, you could have uh, taken any side, <coughs> any side here. Well, How do we, you decide? We generally that?
2: represent. So you're right, Joe. We um, part of it is is it a good opportunity for students, and that's the main thing because the clinic functions uh, to help uh, give students those experiences. And then we look at the issue and if we have. Um, expertise in the issue and whether these clients need help. So most of our clients, all of our clients almost, are nonprofit organizations, as organizations, like the ones I mentioned. We occasionally will represent a government. Right now we're representing the Coastal Commission, kind of a unique representation for us, but normally it's NGOs, non, uh, non-governmental organizations, who don't have the resources, right? So we wouldn't um, represent a private company in most cases, and we wouldn't represent mostly a government agency because they have their own lawyers and resources.
4: I wonder if, if it would be about time just to introduce the case a little bit because I think a lot of the issues become sharper and one of the fun things about law is that when you discuss things, you discuss it in a real-life context. Our students here welcome uh, Chris Meyer and uh, Sidney Frederick. Chris, can I ask you just to jump in? and? Describe the case a little bit that you worked on.
0: Sure. So, and, and I, I uh, also think that because the issues kind of break down along two statutes, Sydney can certainly chime in on the National Environmental Policy Act issue. The issue that I mostly focused on was the Endangered Species Act issue, and and at its heart, what this was trying to figure out was in order to for a federal agency to take the sorts of actions that the Forest Service wanted to take. If those actions would affect an endangered species, they're required to consult on and issue a biological opinion that essentially establishes whether or not that action will harm the species. And our fundamental dispute was with that biological opinion, because we believed under the regulations of the Endangered Species Act that that biological biological opinion was inadequate, that it didn't actually analyze in a meaningful way what the existing population of the Pacific Fisher was. And as a result, anything that was built on that, any argument in that biological opinion for how the Forest Service actions would affect the Fisher were based on a faulty foundation because the agency didn't know how many Pacific Fisher were there. So therefore, how can it conclude it'll only harm an acceptable number of the Pacific Fisher? So that was the crux of the Endangered Species Act claim.
1: Um, And I worked on the National Environmental Policy Act claim As a general matter, that statute, we call it NEPA, says that government agencies, when they're taking actions that could significantly affect the environment, before they do that, they have to stop and assess the potential environmental consequences. There's a provision of that statute that says that after there are significant events that happen on a landscape where you're planning to do a project, even if you've done environmental analysis before, it might be worth it to go back and check again to make sure that all your prior assumptions are still true and that the decision you made to go forward with the project thinking that there were very few environmental consequences or that they could be mitigated is you know, still correct. In this case, you know one of the core triggers for our case were the Creek and Sequoia Complex fires, which burned in the Southern Sierra Nevada in the fall of 2020. And the crux of our NEPA claim was that because of these two fires, which burned in pretty central aspects of fisher ha- central areas of fisher habitat, we thought the Forest Service should have to go back and reanalyze the environmental impact that all the projects it planned to undertake could potentially have. And really critically, we thought that the Forest Service needed to look at the impacts that all of these projects could have together cumulatively, because one of the biggest threats to the fisher that we see in terms of environmental impacts um, on the species is that it's really struggling with habitat fragmentation um, so we thought it was really important to make sure that the forest service was going back and taking a look not just at all the projects individually but um, at the way that all of the projects when looked at together could potentially contribute to further habitat fragmentation on for the species as a whole
3: Sydney just to follow up on that last comment uh, when you say habitat fragmentation could you just walk us through exactly what that is and how the forest Service um, proposals would have affected it
1: sure the Fisher is a species that relies on um, like having multiple different patches of really dense old growth forest habitat um, that are relatively intact so it wouldn't do to have a patch of old growth forest habitat that was checkerboarded with a lot of um, projects happening inside of it that disrupt um, the pattern of tree cover, for example. Um, And the Forest Service, I think, um, working with outside biologists had come up with a strategy before the fires to um, say, OK, here is where we think there is enough habitat for the fisher. It was a conservation strategy that they developed in 2016, I believe. But even around 2016, the strategy was developed based on data that they had collected before 2016 habitat vegetation data. Um, and you know, even at the time they released the conservation strategy, they realized you know, even since we collected the data and came up with a strategy, the forest has been fragmented just based on um, like drought and other events that have been happening in the forest alone. And so the, even before the 2020 fires, the forest already didn't necessarily reflect the strategy that they had to ensure that there was enough intact habitat for the fisher. And so you know, in our case and in our NEPA claim, our central concern was that you know. The Forest Service and the scientists it was working with hadn't even, um, in our mind, had enough time to come up with a new conservation strategy that reflected the landscape before the fires. And that now, after the fires, it was especially important that before the Forest Service go forward with any of the projects it had previously planned, that it stop and take that extra time to make sure that now um, any impacts the projects would have would not be threatening to the species.
4: You know, we're going to have a picture of the Pacific Fisher on the website that'll accompany our show. But I wonder if any of our guests can kind of describe it just a little bit so we get a, a sense of what this animal is.
0: Imagine, I don't know, you jump in if I'm, if I'm misstating it here. Imagine a, a cross between a domestic cat, a fox, and a raccoon. About the same about the same size as a
1: domestic cat. I th- um,
0: yeah. Does that,
1: that sound right? I think that makes sense. Okay. I think it's... As far as I've seen in pictures, it's usually like dark brown. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it have any other kind of like fur pattern or color, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: They're very furtive,
1: they're very sneaky, so they're
0: also like a domestic cat. Uh, they, they don't, it, it's very hard to actually see them in the wild. It's, I think we were asked once, you know, you, you spent months on this, have you ever actually seen one? And we were like on Google, uh, but that's <laughs> about it. Very few people have. Yeah.
2: There, there are only less than 300 of them yeah. in, that, in that population, so.
4: And is that a, dis- a distinct population, or are there some others in other places?
2: There are. It is a distinct population, and so they need to be protected separately. They're isolated from um, populations up north, but there is a northern California, southern Oregon population, which has a few thousand individuals, so it's a slightly bigger population, and not protected by the Endangered Species Act. But there's, as far as they know, there's no. There's no uh, interaction between the two.
3: I see, and part of what you were saying was that we don't know how many there are exactly because some of the data is out of date. I mean, is that right? That that's one of the bases of the lawsuit is that the Forest Service was working on old um, information.
0: And not only that the Forest Service was working on old information, uh, and the information they were working on was at least 15 years old, if not more, Uh, but that since that information had been collected, half of the fisher's habitat had been altered in some meaningful way. It had been affected by drought, it had burned down, it had been infested by certain types of beetle, and what the Forest Service was essentially arguing is, don't worry we can still trust the information from 15 years ago when all of the underlying circumstances have changed and that was that was something that our clients weren't prepared to accept
3: thank you well we'll be back with more from debbie Sevis, chris meyer and cindy frederick about the pacific fisher wildlife trafficking and other issues of environmental law next on stanford legal on sirius xm Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Rich Ford, along with Joe Bankman, and today we're talking to Debbie Sivas, Chris Meyer, and Sydney Frederick about the Pacific Fisher and issues of environmental law and you argued a case in front of the Ninth Circuit. What was it like working on that case? And what was it like arguing in front of the Ninth Circuit as students?
1: I can definitely say it took a lot of preparation. The case uh, was argued January 12th, and I think we started basically a month before that doing practice arguments. First, just with Debbie and with outside counsel we were working with, and then bringing in some professors, both from other clinics as well as professors just who taught normal non-clinic classes in the law school who were willing to jump in and help moot us. So, a lot of preparation over the winter and then the argument itself. At that point, I definitely felt prepared. It just felt nice, at least to me, to feel like arguments I was making and ideas I had come up with were actually like having an impact and being listened to by judges, people who like don't like have to listen to anything I say and like who especially who you know I, I knew based on the panel we had drawn might not necessarily be like particularly sympathetic to our case i would say that things went well
4: and one thing you just mentioned sydney is that that some of our listeners know and others don't is that when you argue before the a circuit court a federal circuit court you get a panel and it's like chosen out of a hat so to speak so some of the appointees come from a side that you might think will be sympathetic to your case or have issued rulings that would be sympathetic to your case and vice versa and it looked like you initially drew or you drew what seemed initially to be an unfavorable panel it's two to one maybe one would guess against
1: you. yeah that's that's certainly what it seems like but i think and maybe chris can jump in here during the argument it seemed that even so all of the judges were listening and asking meaningful questions. And it did seem like they, at least at some points, were satisfied by some of the answers to the questions that I gave. And I think that's reflected in the fact that we were able to get a favorable decision out of them. There was kind of an interesting dynamic where Sydney and I spoke. We got some questions that were,
0: you know, difficult and that we had to grapple with. And it was clear that maybe one or two of the judges had some concerns about the case. And then the government got up, and it was basically 20 minutes of them kind of grilling the government. And you're kind of in the situation where you're saying, okay, I I got some tough stuff, but it seems like the government's getting some stuff that's even tougher. Uh, and, And so what kind of starts as some pessimism kind of gradually shifts to optimism by the time you get to rebuttal
3: and you won a victory now um, you won what's called the preliminary injunction so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about exactly what was at stake and um what's next sure so
0: the the our clients had moved to enjoin the forest service projects in the trial court and lost uh and we appealed that decision to the ninth circuit the ninth circuit didn't um award our clients an injunction but they did vacate the denial of the injunction so essentially what they did was tell the trial court you didn't properly consider uh, the application for an injunction along certain lines. We're going to send you back with instructions, and you have to you have to take another crack at it. Um, and that was it was always going to be difficult, especially at the appellate level, to get an appellate court to enter an injunction or to ask the trial court to do so. Um, so having them simply vacate and send it back uh, and give us kind of another give our clients another bite at the apple was was a good outcome for us.
4: And as a practical matter, how long does this stay things? Is this, does it get argued again right away? Or does this give the ecosystem six months, a year? What's the timing on that? So
0: the bulk of these projects are scheduled to commence in June. Uh, and so obviously, we want to enjoin them before that. Um, what followed after the remand order was kind of a flurry of motions between the two sides of trying to get the trial court to either uh, issue relief prior to June, or to schedule briefing, such that briefing on the renewed motion would be resolved by June. Uh, it it looks, and Sydney, correct me if I'm wrong, that that latter path is kind of where we went. So at this point, what's going to happen is that there's briefing going on right now that the clinics handling, and the hope is that the court will be able to issue a new decision on the on the preliminary injunction uh, before most of these projects begin in June. So, so the timeline hasn't hasn't been extended as much as maybe we're just cutting it a little closer than we might otherwise like.
4: So before June, the trial court is now going to reconsider the matter, taking into account the things it hadn't taken into account earlier.
2: We actually just filed our first opening brief to the trial court yesterday. So uh, Sydney and Chris are on their way to graduating. So we brought a new student in, a second-year student, who worked on the brief, and we filed it yesterday afternoon, so that's all. And it, the, uh, the Ninth Circuit did an unusual thing in response to our request, which was to order the trial court to do something expeditiously because the, the, this particular district, the Eastern District of California, is very over overloaded with cases. And so knowing that the summer logging season was coming up, the Ninth Circuit ordered um, the judge that we have to actually he- hear the matter before the summertime.
4: For someone that doesn't litigate, and while I've been a lawyer for many, many years, I've almost never litigated, the judge you get matters so much. We've talked about that in the panel, where it turned out you couldn't guess what the panel would decide ahead of time just based on, say, who appointed them. But now you're going back to a court that ruled the wrong way the first time, in our opinion, how does that feel? Do you have? Can you even comment on it here, first of all? Because, for all well, we know, the judge is an avid, avid Stanford. Stanford legal <laughs> listener. But, but what happens when you go back like that? Yeah,
2: it's 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 challenging, and um, I, I do think the fact that we went up to the Ninth Circuit and. Uh, re- reverse that order, that the judge will take a, a little bit harder look at the facts of our case here, which is, um, and I, as I said, this court is uh, quite overworked, so um, I'm hoping that we've uh, done a good enough job in this, in this newest brief to um, convince the court to really uh,
4: take a harder look at um, our arguments,
2: and I, I feel optimistic that we may, we may prevail.
4: Is there any possibility of settling when something like this happens? The government now has been told they really have to do this. They probably don't want to recount everything and do all this hard work. What's? Are, are, there, are there negotiations?
2: We've been having discussions with the Forest Service all along, and um, once this round of briefing is done, we are, we've asked our clients, there, we started this case with like 45 projects that we're, we were asking to enjoin, and now we're down to about 18 because we've really gotten down to the most important projects and so we're actually hoping that once the, the, this quick briefing gets done, we'll be able to sit down with the Forest Service and try to negotiate a solution. I, I don't know how viable that is, but we continue to try.
3: Well, this case has broad implications for the way the Forest Service manages the forest generally. And I wonder whether any of you might comment on what you think the prospects are for change at the Forest Service given litigation like this. I mean, is it possible that cases like this will convince the Forest Service to rethink some of its policies on a more general level so that they don't get sued the next
0: I, I think that cases like this are common enough that I, I, I don't I don't know that it would cause any sort of grand rethink in the way that the Forest Service tends to approach these operations, especially because, you know, Forest Service officials, like officials in many federal agencies, are career civil servants uh, who have served under presidents or administrations of both parties and, you know, have just as, as is going to be the case with Civil servants who kind of last a long time in any agency—they they have beliefs about how things should be accomplished in certain ways of, of doing things—and I think, as Debbie alluded to at the beginning of our discussion, it's not as if those those approaches are entirely without merit. Um, so, uh, I at, you know this—I'm skeptical that a, a discrete case like this would have kind of sweeping ramifications, but I think it's the nature of being an aspiring environmental litigator, at least, that you have to hope that you're at least causing. Uh, some rethink or some policy shifts on the margin and that over time and accumulation of these sorts of actions you, you can affect some sort of change but I don't think on an individual case level you're you're going to accomplish something like
3: that. Right so it's not this one case but the good fight continues and perhaps in a series of cases um, we'll see comprehensive change or maybe you just have to keep fighting case by case well it's fascinating work um, thank you so much for talking to us uh, Debbie, Chris and Sydney Uh, about the Pacific Fisher and issues of environmental law and a fascinating case in front of the Ninth Circuit that our students got to work on. Um, I'm Rich Ford for Joe Bankman, and this is Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132.